Today's guest is Abhishek Mother. Abhishek serves as principal advisor at Excelsior Capital, fundamentally involved with investments, operations, and capital markets. He has over a decade of experience in real estate private equity and has advanced knowledge and best practices for strategic real estate investing. In this episode, we dive into his entrepreneurial journey, capital markets, and his lessons learned and advice. Welcome to the Ever Upward Podcast, where the extraordinary is the norm and the uncommon path is our guide. I'm your host, Jared Arnold, and in each episode, I speak with experts in business, investing, and health, exploring common ideas tailored for the uncommon individual. Here we believe that the ordinary is for everyone, but the extraordinary is for those who dare to embrace it. Join us as we unravel insights, share stories, and unlock the secrets that propel us ever upward in the pursuit of a life well lived. This is the Ever Upward Podcast. Abhishek, thank you for joining us today, man. I, uh, I'm trying to do a, a personal thank you for everyone that I have a personal relationship with that comes on uh, the podcast. And not only want to thank you for joining us today, but just thank you for um, the strategy and insight and uh, problem-solving skills that you provide Excelsior and then the mentorship that you've provided me over the last couple of years. I think um, not a lot of people get to, uh, you know, see what goes on behind the scenes every day. And, uh, you've certainly been uh, you know, a good friend and mentor to me. So thank you for not only joining on the podcast, but for everything that you've done the last couple of years. Uh, you've been, it's, it's been awesome to work with you and, and build, uh, Excelsior over the last couple of years and super excited for everything it holds, uh, as we go through this, uh, next, uh, cycle. Yeah. Um, so maybe we just dive right in. Um, you know, you have a really interesting background uh, that not a lot of people probably know about. Maybe let's start with, you know, how did you get into the real estate space? Yeah, sure. So it's actually a kind of a personal story, um, part of a fraternity. And my little brother um, and I would often talk about getting into real estate, I, I think it must have been a real passion of his. And uh, unfortunately, I was in law school my third year. And, uh, you know, after a late night of being out, he was driving home and just went off the highway and, and passed away. And so that kind of always stuck with me. And one of the reasons why I just naturally gravitated towards real estate, because I always thought about building something uh, with him. Um, but you know, I went to law school, went to NYU um, after uh, undergrad at Cornell and uh, just kind of went into the real estate practice as a lawyer, uh, initially doing leases for Citibank branches around the country. Uh, real fun. And uh, overall sort of transitioned into joint ventures uh, and private equity fund formations uh, where in pension plans were investing in different types of real estate. Uh, with different sponsors. Um, all of this work, a lot of this work was at a law firm called Kirkland Ellis, uh, one of the law firms that specializes in this type of private equity work. Um, after about six years or seven years as a lawyer, I realized that, you know, I didn't want to become a partner at a law firm. That really wasn't the exciting thing. And so thought the grass might be greener if I went to an investment bank um, Brock Capital, small boutique merchant bank, uh, where I worked with pension plans in their real estate investments and other illiquid investments. One of the 
deals, um, for example, was the UAW and their ownership of uh, Chrysler and General Motors. <clears throat> this really, you know, obviously an investment bank is never someone's uh, landing spot for the rest of their life with family and kids. And so my wife was from Nashville, started identifying uh, real estate opportunities down here. And uh, that's really how um, went out and sort of built our own uh, real estate private equity firm. Yeah, I mean, you, you've been involved in, you know, acquisition, financing, operations, um, you know, leasing and, and disposition. You've, you've seen it all. What are some of the key lessons that you've learned from, from these experiences across, you know, all different aspects of real estate? Yeah, so you're right. As a GP, as a limited partner, as an attorney, investment banker, I think the best investors are probably the ones who are willing to take a win when there's a win instead of holding on to that asset. Um, and same thing when there's a loss. You, you, when the deal parameters have changed, you need to move on and realize that that deal is not going to turn around. And so, so for, for me, it's doing a lot of deals, having a diversification in your portfolio, uh, but aiming for the right risk reward and, and taking those wins when you get them. Yeah, I've certainly seen... Um you know, that reevaluation, the reanalysis firsthand, the experience that you bring to the table um, of, of recognizing, you know, when things have changed or, um, you know, when we, the situation has played out exactly how we expect it to, uh, you know, kind of moving on in whatever aspect that may be. Um, what is, uh, can you maybe share, you know, a, a particular event or, or situation that was challenging um, in the real estate space and maybe some crucial tech takeaways of, of navigating through that. Yeah. So, you know, th there's always a complicated deal that someone has done, uh, whether it's sort of an IPO of a deal or a private equity JV with a foreign capital. Um, to me, the most challenging deals for me are always the ones that didn't happen. Um, so last year we had one where we got very close. It was a 1031 transaction and um, the seller wouldn't budge on the closing date. And so we lost the deal simply because of a calendar date of two weeks off. Um, you know, the more deals you do, I think it's the ones that you don't do that'll always stay with you. Uh, and part of, you know, the crucial takeaways are knowing that and continuing to be focused of sort of annually reevaluating all of your deals, taking your wins, taking your losses, and keep working through that process. Yeah, I know exactly which one you're talking about, and it still stings. It still keeps me up at night. Um, we don't mention the the name of the asset in the office, which is kind of funny because um, it still hurts that much. Uh, but when things like that happen, you know, I, I think investors or, you know, folks on the outside looking in, they just kind of assume the worst, right? And, you know, communication is is key. Uh, how have you learned over the years? You know, you've got, like we said, tons of experience here. How have you learned over the years to just make sure that, you know, we're being upfront with investors and, you know, communicating all the things that we should be in a situation like that? Yes. So I think there are two parts of this. One, making sure that you're always available for a phone call. Um, but two, sending an email update uh, routinely as you go through these transactions. We, we have 
so many different deals, many partnerships. It's just important to send an email saying, hey, this is the critical dates. This is where the seller's position might be on a transaction. Um, and that really, you know, it takes 10 minutes of our time and it lets everyone believe that they're true partners and really lets us all work together towards a uh, common goal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it, maybe not necessarily in that situation because it was kind of outside of our hands, but in the ones where uh, we do have more control over, uh, you know, allowing them to have, uh, you know, a voice in it, um, hear their opinion. And, you know, it may not be the route that we go because you have, you know, as many as 30, 50 people in a partnership and you kind of go with the masses. But I think helping, you know, or, or allowing people to have a voice, you know, uh, helps with their at least feelings in terms of, um, you know, evaluating how the situation went down and how the communication transpired. So let's maybe switch gears a little bit more and talk more, you know, macro capital markets trends. Uh, what, what are some of the trends that we're currently seeing within the real estate space? Um, how have those evolved over the last five years? And then what do you see kind of the next five years transpiring? Yeah. So obviously from a challenge of the last five years, we had COVID. We got beyond COVID, hopefully. Uh, and then we had this interest rate environment that that we've created with Jerome Powell. Um, certainly low rates are good for everybody in real estate. And today the challenge is the high interest rate environment. Um, it's going to lead to a wall of maturity defaults um, that everyone has talked about. Um, I think because of the specific moment in time rates, maturity defaults, and everything else. 2024 is probably that one year where you can pick up the most distressed opportunities um, and suspect that by the end of 24 and into 25, rates are lower and that opportunity landscape has changed again. So our goal is to really focus on those type of distressed opportunities um, that are going to be short in duration, situational, uh, interest rate driven, um, and then kind of evolve from there. For the next five years, you know, looking back at 08 is probably a good example. We had a moment in time where there were a lot of trouble. Um, but by 2010 through 2013, rates were stabilizing and there were fewer distressed opportunities. And so that's really where we want to be quick on the right deals and then work through them over the next couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're thinking about 2008, because I, I hear this comparison, you know, brought up a lot and you're thinking about 2008, hopefully we don't see that level of distress or that level of pressure. Where where are we in that in that cycle um, comparing ourselves to 2008? Are we, you know, 2009 leading into 2010 or later? You know, where, where do you kind of see us at in that comparison? Sure. I, I think when 08 started, people weren't sure what the issue was and how that would resolve. Today, we know what the issue is. And if you look at the futures yield curve, we know how it will resolve. It'll resolve in the next 18 to 24 months as rates come down. Uh, and maybe there's a light recession, uh, but we, we already know what that economic landscape is likely to be. And so we're probably in that 2010, 20 timeframe. And that's where being able to purchase those distressed opportunities is really a a stressful and important activity because I think that window closes pretty quickly on us, depending on how quickly this economic landscape evolves through the cycle. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, then you have a, another evolution of kind of the investment thesis. Uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say for Excelsior, I wouldn't say a change. It just continues to evolve based on the environment that we're in, um, per se. So let's put your sponsor GP hat on for a minute here. Um, I think a, a common misconception in our world is that uh, we have insight into the investor's uh, portfolios and that we're advising them in a certain direction. And that's just certainly not the case. You know, we find real estate uh, opportunities that are compelling to us for whatever reason, and we send it out to our investor network. And if it fits within their portfolio, that's ultimately their decision. Um, in terms of guiding investors in relation to that real estate portfolio, and in the context of just broader alternative investments, are there any specific strategies or insights that you can share in terms of, you know, helping them assess that portfolio and move forward? Yeah, I, I think diversification is the key here. So it, you're right, as sponsors, as GPs, we want to find opportunities that are attractive to us, that generate the best IRR, the best multiple uh, for an opportunity all of those returns come with a risk reward profile. And so however someone designs their portfolio, let's say it's 50% public securities, 80% public securities, there's a portion of the remainder that goes towards real estate in addition to their private equity or other allocations. And so it's taking that portion of real estate, finding a diversification and, and knowing that each deal has a risk reward. So if a pro forma shows a 30% IRR, if you are a more risk-loving, aggressive allocation, maybe all of your deals should be allocated to those that the IRR is into the 30s. Or maybe this is retirement capital and you want to be in the mid-teens or high teens and all of your capital should be allocated like that. And so really, that's how we suggest it, taking 20 to 40 of these type of deals, allocating evenly across those deals, maybe hitting a few uh, home runs, and then the rest of, our, uh, rest of them are singles and doubles over the next 10, 20 years. And that's a successful strategy uh, to, to go through your, your investment profile, your horizon. This podcast is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, a private equity firm that provides individuals access to highly vetted commercial real estate investments. To learn more about Excelsior, head to excelsiorgp.com. That's E-X-C-E-L- S-I-O-R-G-P.com. In terms of talking about returns, you are one of the most uh, impressive tax minds that I know, especially when taking into account that you're not a CPA and didn't go down that route, um, have a lot of knowledge in the tax world. How do you factor in the implications from a tax perspective in terms of total return and not just looking at you know the kind of highlighted numbers, yield, IRR, et cetera? Yeah. A good friend of mine who's a CPA told me once, always be happy to pay your taxes because that means you made money. Um, so I'm always happy to pay taxes, especially on the wins. Um, when it comes to net returns, real estate obviously has some benefits, maybe many benefits. You have cost segregation, maybe bonus depreciation is coming back at 100%. Uh, maybe you can use an opportunity zone on an exit, or you can do a 1031 exit. And certainly some of our partnerships have that feature where investors can use 1031s as a way to exit out and move on and avoid taxes. Um, but 
you you need to always assume you're paying your cap gains a uh, a multiple of a two x. You need to look at the the basis and and look at the tax you'll pay one day. Um, nothing wrong with it. Just part of the analysis. And obviously, GPs will have their own analysis, so they're providing you net returns without the tax layer added on. And you need to keep that in mind as part of your work. Yeah, and we're recording this on January nineteenth of twenty twenty four. Um, just to set perspective here, they are talking about bringing. Um, bonus depreciation back at 100% retroactive for 2023 and uh, extending it until 2025. Do you see a world where, you know, we go back to um, reduce bonus depreciation? Do you think that's going to continue? What are your expectations there? This kind of came out of left field. It's a little bit of a shocker to me even. Uh, I was calling for it more so going into 2023 and it never got brought up. And then here we are a year later and it's getting mentioned again. Yeah, it's a bipartisan bill that has broad support, it seems like. They call it the Child Tax Credit Bill. Um, so if anyone's looking it up online, that that's the headline news for the bill. Um, if It seems like it's going to get done this month. And if it does, it is likely going to extend it for a number of years. Usually when you have something that's been there for five plus years, it becomes entrenched in our memories as standard. And so... It'll be hard to get rid of 100% bonus depreciation, which means that uh, cost segregation and lower basis will continue to be important. And 1031 and opportunity zones on the exit will continue to be more relevant than ever before. Yeah, I agree. And like I said, it's something that I was kind of calling for heading into 2023 when folks were talking about a downturn. Uh, It can certainly provide a level of stimulus uh, to the industry. Um, you know, I, I just don't, I don't see a world where, uh, at least drastically we, we change from where we are. Maybe it will, I don't know. Um, but I, I just don't see it coming. So let's maybe move on and look more backwards looking. We've had this extensive career, you know, 20 years in the industry. Let's reflect on that for a minute. What, what's some, you know, advice that you would give to young entrepreneurs or those that are trying to break into the space it seems like real estate is kind of embedded into the culture of this country. And a lot of people, you know, whether it's residential, commercial, whatever, a lot of people love to, to um, try to break into it in some degree. What, what advice would you have to those that are either, you know, early on in their career or trying to break into the space? Sure. So my family has been in real estate for a very long time, but I was like a lot of people. I was a lawyer. I was an investment banker working nine to five. And, um, I think the best advice someone gave me when I was starting out was do your first deal. Don't let the risk hold you back. Don't let the unknown hold you back. You just have to commit and go all in. Um, At the time I did the first deal, I had two kids. One of them was probably a year old. So lots of, lots of uh, burdens and responsibilities. Um, But life only grows from where you are. And so the earlier you are in life, um, be willing to take that risk. And I think that's the most important thing that you can do because there'll always be a million reasons why not to do a deal. Yeah. And we've hit on your experience now a couple of times throughout you know, the, the episode thus far. How important is it to get that first deal done? And what level of experience does it provide you know, for the next deal and the next deal and the next deal to where 20 years down the road, you're looking back and you may not have seen it all, but you've seen something similar and you're able to solve those problems that, uh, you know, maybe on that first deal you weren't able to, 
you know, how important is that? Every single deal has come up with a new issue. And I think where you ended that question is exactly right. Um, There's always a way to solve that problem. And it's about being flexible. Now, you can be a 70-year-old real estate lawyer and have seen a lot. That doesn't mean you're necessarily going to continue to be flexible in solving that problem quickly. Uh, And so it comes with two sides. You need the education and the learning that a lot of deals provide. Um, But a 25-year-old can also do their first deal because it's about being flexible, being willing to take the risk, and being willing to dive in and learn the newest issue that's come up. That could be a survey issue. It could be an easement issue. It could be a lender issue. It could be a partnership issue with your investor. Um, But there's so many different aspects, and it's multidisciplinary, to be honest, um, that it's really the flexible mind and the hard work nature that will succeed in this business more than any level of education or experience at the end of the day. Yeah, we always say internally, you know, any acquisition that we move forward with is going to have at least three problems. Um, you know, one in the middle, one in the beginning, one in the middle, and one at the end. I would say that's on average. Um, there's certainly multiple opportunities for different problems to come up or different things that you have to overcome. And it comes down to your willingness to do so and put in the work to, to kind of get over that hump. Um, you know, it, it can be challenging can be frustrating, but it can also be really re- rewarding. And for those that are kind of considering the industry, I come from a CPA world. Abhishek comes from the the attorney world, you know, where it's very, um, can be very monotonous and real estate is certainly uh, not, the, not the case there. Uh, it's always something different. It's uh, always something new and challenging. Um, and maybe, like I said earlier, the situation may not be exactly similar to something you've seen before, um, but it has similarities to where you can kind of approach it from a similar mindset, uh, which I think is really important. Um, so let's talk about Excelsior for a minute. Uh, you know, we've primarily been focused uh, leading up to 2023 on providing that cash yield. Um, you know, we talked about maybe the changing landscape and in, in terms of macro environment earlier in the podcast, what do you see next for Excelsior, you know, to, five years down the road. Yeah, sure. So in the next two years, certainly it's what I was mentioning earlier, distressed opportunities. So we think there's a short window here uh, until the yield curve sort of changes the rate environment. Uh, We want to be able to buy those opportunities where there's uh, a pain, a debt maturity or something else for the seller, uh, where rental rates really haven't caught up to what the inflationary environment of last two years were. And Rates might be 20, 30% below market. Um, And so we want to be able to capture those assets, acquire as much as we can, and position ourselves to do that work for the next um, two to five years. Um, Beyond that, you know, Excelsior has grown where we're focused on being nimble, being focused on the asset class that's succeeding, that's in the right place. And so in this economic environment, we want to continue to be that and as we come out of the high rate environments, it's hard to predict if flex industrial will continue to be as strong as it has been, if medical office will evolve or a different asset class, maybe self-storage or, or uh, multifamily will come back. Um, you know, multifamily certainly had some of its problems in the rate environment. And so 
goal is to be very nimble um, and to be able to position ourselves to take advantage of that rate environment uh, as it eases in the next uh, year, year and a half. Yeah, and I think that's an important point. And you also mentioned, you know, kind of the growth of Excelsior. Um, I, I don't think there's a there's not a ton of appreciation of how much of a business it actually is, the GP, the sponsorship actually is. What are some of the lessons that you've learned on, you know, the the sponsor side, running a business, having business partners? I'm now your business partner. You know, what what advice would you have to those that are, um, you know, in a partnership and, and dealing with different personalities and such? Yeah. So I, I actually told this to my kid yesterday. I don't work for myself. I work for all of my employees and partners and all decisions are made generally as a consensus decision. And so to me, that's a really important environment to work in. Uh, probably the thing that I learned working in a hierarchical uh, work environment, a law firm, an investment bank, that I don't want to work in that type of environment. So yeah, there's certainly important decisions that you know go all the way to the top, but it's about making sure that everyone is happy, everyone is working in an environment that they want to, and we're building a business that everyone is going to be proud of. And so that's obviously focused on real estate. It's focused on different types of asset classes and strategies, but it's about making sure that all of our minds are working together. Everyone's an expert in what they do. You're a CPA. We have a CFA. We have marketing people. We have asset managers that have 40, 50 years of experience, and we're trying to lean on all of their expertise to build a great business. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we have grown, we've experienced, you know, some pretty significant growth over the last couple of years, but we still are a small, very nimble team. Um, and you kind of touched on the different experiences and expertises that each of our employees have, uh, or business partners. How important is it to have a team that has that experience and is willing to do the work that it takes, right? Because when you have nine people on the team, everyone's got to pitch in for something. Um, and, and that's, that's a culture thing. So how do you build that culture, uh, to where each employee is not only willing to do, you know, what they were hired to do, but kind of pitch in to do other things as well. I think everyone's an adult and if you trust people, they will trust and give that work, uh, back to you. And so, that's really been my nature of how I like to work. I have my to-dos and I trust people and I go to them and tasks go down and come, come back up and, and we work interactively. Um, but at the same time, I strongly believe that none of us are experts in anything other than the one thing that we're an expert in. And so hiring people who are experts in their field, uh, leaning on their expertise, relying upon them, uh, trusting them in that work environment as well with their expertise is critical uh, when building a firm, when building a real estate business that is focused on different asset classes that require a lot of different hats and a lot of different expertise. Yeah, absolutely. And we covered a lot of different topics within the last, you know, 25, 30 minutes. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, Abhishek, I know you're trying to build a personal brand. How can people find you, follow you, get in touch? Um, what would be a good way to reach out? Yeah, so CRE Principal on Twitter, just getting that started. Um, also, feel free to email uh, on Excelsior and working through uh, a couple of other marketing uh, brands this year, and, and we'll see where we evolve. 
Yeah, and uh, I guess that's your official announcement in terms of no anonymity on uh, on Twitter, huh? There you go. <laughs> well, thank you for for joining on this episode of the Ever Upward Podcast, Bishak. I know we'll have you on uh, to talk about various topics throughout the years. Um, for those of you that haven't met Abhishek or just haven't had a chance to get to know him, like I said at the beginning, he's got incredible insight um, and experience and uh, has always been willing to help me. So feel free to reach out. And uh, Abhishek, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you, Jared. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm.